My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? As the 18th century rolled into the 19th, Eastern mysticism and Buddhist thought began to make inroads west. Arthur Schopenhauer and Friedrich Nietzsche engaged in initiating the gradual diffusion leading to a new age of spiritual philosophies, a transcendental escapade that flirted with detaching from the growing industrial behemoth. Few noticed the beast and the bellow, a herald of the new aeon, a self-actualized occult disclosure, a terminal prescription of wool masks for the uninitiated, while the blind lead the bind, and the elect mock rituals with sadistic habitual sacrificial victuals, a man or myth, alleged legends of filth, confessions of a drug fiend, Repression to the obscene hero and hated his figure inflated. Scrutiny deserved, suspicious convictions unearthed, and the unholy birth, the B666. Marcos Visconti joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss the Lima and the occult new age that Aleister Crowley conjured in the 20th century. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Marcos Visconti. Mistress back in Shanghai. Rose was unable to cope on her own and the child died of typhoid. Crowley then deserted Rose for good, blaming for the death. In despair, she went mad. Back in England, Crowley found his first disciple, Victor Neuberg, a young Cambridge poet. In the case of Neuberg, there was definitely a peculiar kind of homosexual relation, and I'm not just now talking about the ordinary physical thing. Neuberg was in love with him. That's what, that's what I mean. Uh, he got mixed up with Crowley. Crowley saw there a far weaker character, um, plunged on Neuberg, and of course got, dragged him into this whole business of black magic. Oh, don't be the me, I don't know that. 
Freiburg was subjected to a series of sadistic acts designed to test the poet's dedication to the beast. The two set off to Algeria to perform Enochian magic, a dark and dangerous set of occult rituals. They walked deep into the Sahara for two days until they reached the point of exhaustion. The stone's flirtation with the dark side was brief, but since the 60s, the occult has seen an explosion in popularity. There are now thousands of occult websites on the internet, with many dedicated to the great beast. For devotees of Crowley, it's possible to certainly see a lot of the things he predicted, prophesied, as having come to pass. Certainly Christianity's grip over what we can and can't say, what we can and can't think, what we can and can't do, is diminishing. Today, Crowley's followers believe that he was a true prophet because he foresaw a society that has now embraced ideas of sexual and spiritual freedom. Others are not so sure. I think today modern occultism sees a very watered-down version of Crowley. They gloss over uh, some of the atrocious things that he did, um, and they just want to see him as a, a benign a humanist, somebody who said, let's be free, let's go with the flow. Um, and it is to deny uh, an awful lot of evilness that happened in his practices. We should be open and honest uh, about Alistair Crowley. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And with me today is a very special guest. Marco Visconti joins us. Marco, tell us a little bit about your book and, and what you do and, and maybe even after how, how you got introduced to all of this uh, very interesting stuff that you write about and you, you teach. Of course. Well, first of all, uh, well, thank you for inviting me. It was nice to realize that it's not just my family that thinks I'm crazy. Other people have the same <laughs> problem as well, right? <laughs> I, my interest is in thelema. Thelema is a Greek word uh, that means will. And it's also the, um, the name of the magical philosophy that was, uh, somebody will say founded, somebody will say channeled, somebody say that he was a heir to something that was already there. But of course, we're talking about the notorious Aleister Crowley. Um, I wrote a book almost a year ago. Uh, well, it was, well, it's been it's been years in the making, but uh, it was published uh, almost a year ago. Like next week, actually, I'm gonna celebrate the first anniversary. Entitled the uh, the Lester Crowley Manual: Telemic Magic for Modern Times. I gotta say, it's been an, um, a small success, right? In the in the world of cult and esoteric publishing, 
you know, it's 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 a very small niche, right? You writing about these things, you you won't become a millionaire, that's for sure. But this book has been done very well. Like it's, I think I sold around five thousand copies so far, which is, I mean, it's incredible. I I never expected to, for it to have such such a resonance with people. Oh. And I guess it's down to the fact that I tried what a lot of people told me was impossible to do, and that is to try and distill the practical side of the lemma. So the practical side of Aleister Crowley's magic for modern times in the sense like, you know, updating the language, trying to write in, in more contemporary English. I guess it helps that I'm Italian. So my English is, is, is a working progress anyway. Uh, so, you know, like I had to let go of all the usual beautiful constructs and great um, you know, philosophical vibe that you all, all from time to time you find in books about Crowley and about Dilemma and just concentrate on the basis, right? Like what is magic, why we do it, what we can achieve with it, how hard is going to be, a lot hard, by the way, and, uh, and where to go next, right? So a very simple how to do manual. I've been I've been interested in Telema most of my life. I mean, I can, I'm in my mid-40s, and I discovered Telema in 1990 when I was in my early teens. So it's been, it's been a lifelong endeavor for me. At some point in my life, I got involved very heavily with various um, organizations, uh, orders, magical orders, groups. The most famous or, again, infamous of them maybe is the OTO or Ordo Templariantis. And I've, I've been quite the vocal proponent for Ordo Temperiantis till I wasn't anymore. And that was already, oh, wow, it was already six years ago, 2018. Time flies, <laughs> especially with the last few years of craziness. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, like for a while I was a big, big fan of it. and was really, I really believed in the project. And then, you know, as you go deeper into into the degree system, as you climb the ladders, as you, re you realize it's so a bit of a scam and it's so a bit of a, of a game that I didn't want to play and, and I left. I wrote, I wrote extensively about it uh, on my, well, it used to be on my website, now it's on my Medium articles. So if anybody's curious, maybe they can go and read it for it or, you know, we can discuss it if you want. But, you know, like something that I discussed so many, so many times already that... It just, uh, let's say, it, it hasn't been a good experience. <laughs> and so since, ever since, uh, I thought that, you know, it was good. It was a good idea to try and see if people could still be interested in Thelemic philosophy, Thelemic magic, without always devolving it to be a cult of personality, uh, mm. a, basically a religion of Crowleyanity, okay? Um, and I found it that to be very difficult, in fact, because... Crowley was definitely like a larger than life character for the good and the bad. It was it was a very interesting character. It was a very problematic character. Uh, but the problem the problem that I think it's there uh, is that a lot of people who uh, approach Telema don't do it because they really want to be magicians or Telemites. And maybe at some point we could even see what that entails. But they kind of want to be like Crowley. <laughs> they kind of want to you know live vicariously through you know to this larger than life character and try to emulate his uh, you know. Uh, is adventures. And I think that's completely missing the point. Unfortunately, that's the reality of what I found um, in Ordo Tempurientis. And also in general, that's the approach that you find whenever you find other Telemites, especially online, which is where you usually find them, right? It's, we're very few and very far between, by the way. 
Um, yeah. The thing is that, you know, despite realizing that problem, uh, I decided to to try it anyway. And not only the book came out of the last the endeavors of the last six years, but also a series of courses and lectures and classes that I've been teaching to quite some success, in fact, over the last uh, over these last years. I guess also thanks to the fact that out of sudden teaching and studying online was okay because we were all stuck inside for a while yeah. due to covid and so you know the boom of zoom the in many ways i think the you've seen maybe you've seen it as well like the boom of podcasts and everything that was you know all the kind of content you could consume uh, while being stuck at home, right? So I was I was lucky to ride that wave, despite you know the world falling apart outside the houses, our houses. Um, but that also you know helped me to kind of prove that you you can teach the uh, the subjects and people can listen, will listen, and will put that put those practices into 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 their and daily routines, right? And uh, and so that's that's what I've been doing ever since, right? I kind of. Pivot at hard uh, many ways. Like you know, before the pandemic, I used to be a musician. I've been a professional musician for a long time, and then you know, I was appro- I was approaching forty. I decided it was time to uh, you know re- get out of that business because it was kind of unsustainable. Um, and then I, you know, for a while, for a short while, I worked in uh, consulting. Then the pandemic came along, everything ended, and so I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a telemite since I was, since I've always been a telemite. I'm gonna be a professional telemite, and yeah, that's that's my story in a nutshell. I think. Wow, I love hearing that because I I can relate to multiple things, multiple aspects of your path. And it's a little relieving, although I did get the sense of, of this from reading your work that, yeah, you, you're, uh, you're helping people avoid that pitfall that is all too common. And it's not just with Crowley, but it, it, typically anytime group of people get together with some sort of esoteric knowledge, somebody comes along and blunders it and makes it all about them. And uh, maybe Crowley was the first to sort of uh, ride the the wave of celebrity in that sense, maybe the mm-hmm. infamy side of, of Celebrity Dome. But, uh, but Crowley certainly attracts an interesting type of person. I myself found Crowley at an age when, you know, I was looking for deeper meaning in life. Uh, I had a lot of, a large sense that I had been lied to and, and I had this growing kind of jaded feeling about the world and Crowley's work as you know, it, it, it feels rebellious, almost like he's reveling in the, the, uh, the fact that he is so wicked, right. Or at least yeah, as yeah, his absolutely. reputation grew, he, he really kind of reveled in that. And that was interesting to young, you know, myself as a young teenager, like I was interested in, in, you know, what my mind can go beyond, you know, what were the limits of my mind and how could I go beyond them? And Crowley to me seemed like a possible uh, mentor in that sense. And Mm -hmm. when I found myself really like reading Crowley, uh, things started to to change in a weird way. Um, I'm not saying that there was any sort of like transformation or anything, but it definitely helped me reframe the world and how I saw the world. And it also is a quick story, but one day I brought Lieber 
for the book of magic into a job I had at the time. And this was a public place as a cafe and I was the, the barista, right? So I'm behind the counter with my Crowley book, serving up drinks. And in between customers, I would go and read a few pages, right? Well, on this day, it just so happened that, I don't know, if the mental asylum had let some people out or, or if the homeless were just getting particularly backed up on that street, but a man walked into the cafe and he starts, you know, he sat down at a table, he pulls out some candles, pulls out a Bible and starts scribe, scribing between the lines in the Bible scribbling wow. rather <laughs> and you know i'm a little bit disturbed by this and i had just been reading the the book i mentioned lieber four uh, so i'm thinking to myself wow what are the odds that the the day i bring a crowley book in this person who seems disheveled and homeless is conducting a uh you know makeshift ritual right here in our cafe uh ceremonial magic if you will and without Showing him the book without mentioning the book or even interest in any of that, he came up to the counter and, uh, and you know, asked for a coffee. And I said, What are you doing over there? And it agitated him, you know, my nosiness. And he's like, I'm the third incarnation of Charles Manson and the great grandson of Aleister Crowley. And and he, you know, he starts getting all agitated, like I'm, you know, you know, messing with his funk, whatever he's got going on. But when he said Alistair Crowley, I was like, I was shocked. I'm like, whoa, yeah. you know, because the book wasn't visible unless he, you know, saw me through the window or something. There's no way he could have known that. And it just kind of struck me. I didn't say anything to him, but it just kind of struck me like, wow, these these words in this book, they're they're powerful, right? And I don't know if the book itself is powerful, but the the experience that that person sort of uh, presented to me, it, it really kind of drilled into my mind the power of words and books and circumstances and how, you know, something as moat as a book can actually kind of be this like energized magnet and attract experiences right does that make well, any sense what do you think of that it no it does in the sense that in, in my experience um it's not so much the books or the tools you know like i tend to think that it's us in the sense that each one of us can get to a point in their lives where we might hear what I would call, I would call it a call, okay? Something like, you know, the, the call of the other, the call of the mysterious, whatever, I mean, whatever you want to call it, it's like, it's, there's no real name for it. It's just like, a, let's say almost like an, a, tend a tendency to try and, and seek what is not mm. visible, right? And when that happens, if we decide to embark on that journey, even if, even if for, you know, a few days, a few weeks, a few months, it doesn't have to be like a commitment, something that becomes like a, you know, a lifestyle, like it has been for me. I think that you said, you know, at that point we send out messages to the universe, right? We become almost like beacons. Um, maybe because the universe immediately fires back, letting us know that's going to be challenging, right? If, we, if it is, if, if it is our will, to embark on this journey and be, let it become the lifestyle choice I believe it should be, 
I think everybody should know from the very beginning and maybe, you know, meeting a very strange character as you did possibly can be one of those, you know, signposts that, that will tell you, you know, it's going to be hard. You're going to be, you're going to be meeting a lot of crazies. And maybe sometimes these crazies are visible. Sometimes these crazies are not visible. And maybe you have to, which means implies also, you know, learning how to cope with our own mental stability, mental mm. health. Uh, but that's something that I, I've, I've heard many times and it, it most certainly happened to me as well at different points in my life towards this, this lifelong journey that I've been undertaking so far. The moment you open up for the, 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 poten you know, the, the, the potentiality that the world has, we grew up believing it, it, there's more to it, right? It's not just, you know, nine to five jobs or, you know, even just, you know, anything that I would call it like mainstream philosophy, science, uh, um, uh, soteriology, all of it, right? There is, there's definitely something else, but it's, challenging to to in, to engage with it and you know the moment we we touch it for the first time it all it immediately fires back almost like almost like like i don't know a warning shot a testing shot say hey <laughs> by the way let you i will let you know that this is going to be a bit of a, a roller coaster ride are you ready for it you want to do it and uh, then that's that down to you right it's down to each one of us uh I, I think I lost the count of how many people I've met over the course of the years that were, you know, adamant that they wanted to be magicians. They wanted to learn magic. They were sure about it. And then the moment magic started to happen, they closed the book, never opened it again, maybe tossed the book away. It wasn't for them. Uh, but, you know, it's it, Crowley himself in Liber O, which is one of the Libri that is that are that are reprinted in uh, uh, Liber ABA, book four, the ones you, you have. It really says that, that at the beginning of Liber O that, you know, in, in this book, uh, we speak of, you know, pla planets, gods, sephiroth, paths, etc. I'm quoting not verbatim, but that's the gist of it. And it also says, like, it doesn't matter if these things exist or not. What matters is that if we do something, something happens. And that's, that really is the focus, at least for me, is the focus of what Telema and Telemic magic is all about, right? Not so much like endlessly interrogating what is the meaning of, there will be time for it, but at the very beginning, you should just learn that, you know, doesn't matter if these things exist or not, doesn't matter if you can make sense of these things or not yet, if you do something, something will happen. And, you know, in many ways, possibly for you, you know, you were started reading uh, Libre ABA and immediately <laughs> you realize that, well, uh, you know, the bringing, uh, opening those doors implies that you will, your world will change in the sense you'll maybe end up meeting a lot of strange characters saying to be their incarnation of Aleister Crowley or the granddaughter, grandson of Aleister Crowley, something like that. I'm, I met so many reincarnations <laughs> and grandsons and granddaughters of Aleister Crowley that, <laughs> again, I lost count of how many out there. Oh yeah, no, it's legion at this point. But I think that just speaks to the, you know, character that Crowley created for himself. And in, in that sense, there was something really truly unique and impressive about what he was able to do um <clears throat> although it does seem to attract a lot of people with narcissistic tendencies uh, mm -hmm. i don't think that necessarily you know makes something valuable 
It just means that you, you should maybe check your ego at the door and, and you know, have a, have a good sense of uh, social awareness, you know, stepping yeah, into yeah, these absolutely. kind of things, right? Would you, would you agree with that? Because it, it does seem like the occult in general has gotten a bad reputation, not for the practice itself, but for the, you know, players involved, you know, blame the, the shooter and not the gun kind of thing. Well, you know, I agree. I agree completely. I tend to be firmly on the side that we should separate the art from the artist, right? And, you know, I can deny I still like a lot of black metal. That's how some of the music I grew up with. And I really don't agree with any of the black metal philosophies, especially, you know, the early, you know, Norwegian true cult black metal. I don't agree with any of their ideas, never did. But hey, you know what? I can't deny it. I like the music. It really speaks to me. I like something that's, you know, bleak and dark. But that's I, I grew up with that stuff. And it's pretty much the same in, uh, you know, in the, I would say in the occult, right? When it comes to Crowley, I think that the reason why he's still so, discussed. Uh, there's a couple of reasons, right? First of all, I do believe that the message of Telema is invaluable, right? It is, it really flips everything that we be, we grew up to believe in on, on its head. Like we grew up, most of us in the Western world uh, grew up, you know, in Christian households and we most of us so grew up to believe that it, you know, it does, it, all we have to do is that we have to be good because at some point, if we're good, somebody will save us. Because we have, you know, we were born into this world with an, an impossible sin that we cannot, you know, clear ourselves from. But you know, Christ died for us, and so if we're good, like we will be saved by Him in death. Philema tells you that first of all, there's no sin. There's never, there was never any sin, and you don't need anybody to save you because there's nothing to be saved from. And in fact, there shouldn't be any guilt about it either. Actually, we should engage with life as, as fully as possible. And we also should not be afraid of death because you know what? Death will come for all of us. So it's almost like death is the, other, it's, it's the, only, the only sure thing we have in this game we call life. So, you know, in a way, like, and there's more to it, but I'm, trying, I'm simplifying it. And the point is that just this kind of like clears the slate of 2000 years of, you know, of culture, if you think about it. Yeah. Right? So I think that is, that is important, right? That, that is the message. Now, I also like to point out the fact that one of the reasons why Croix also is as a character, so still attracts a lot of, of interest, maybe of the more narcissistic uh, and self-centered kind, because he was a narcissist, self-centered person, because he was born into immense wealth, right? We, I always like to say, like, when, when, when his father died, he inherited almost the equivalent of six million pounds, which is, I think it's $9 million. And by the time he was 30, in his mid, early to mid-30s, so a few, a decade or more or less, all that money was gone already. So imagine like burning through all that money in just a decade, right? It means like you've lived large. Wow. And a lot, a lot of people love the idea of living large. Like we're, we're, I think we're, as a society, we're coming to a big reckoning right now. We are realizing that the, another thing that we've been, most of us in the Western world, uh, we grew up believing it, is that we, we are temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Maybe we're starting to realize we're not, and we never were. 
and possibly never will be right either. So the idea of having, you know, hey, at the same time, there was this strange guy that was at least has been perceived is perceived by many as this iconoclast, uh, countercultural, gender fluid uh, maverick that he had a lot of money, but he spent it all and he, he lived his life large. Maybe that's something we can aspire to be. I think there's a, that's problematic, and it, that is what creates all the imbalances we find in a culture uh, about you know people that come to dilemma because they really want to be the next Crowley, not real, not realizing they 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 don't have nine million nine million pounds in the bank, nine million dollars sorry in the bank to start with, and maybe even those who have them usually they don't have the wits of Crowley because Crowley was also a very intelligent man. He was a mountaineer when, you know, mountaineering was a new thing. Like, it, it, and he was, he was, was very renowned and very, in very early age. He was a chess master. He could play several people at once, right? So, you know, like it, all these things come together. And unfortunately, you know, in the 60s, when Crowley was first rediscovered by the, the generation of the Beatles of the Rolling Stones, they latched on the idea, of course, of the counterculture iconoclast, right? Mm. But also because I think all these people that made him famous again after all the years of infamy, infamy while he was alive, they all recognized themselves in him. But none of us are the Beatles. None of us are the, the Rolling Stones. So, you know, extremely talented and extremely lucky and extremely wealthy individuals, right? So, you know, I don't know if I can, I can make my point clear, but there's, there's this huge imbalance that I've, that I've seen in a culture about either wanting to demonize Crowley because he was a terrible person. I mean, think of it, it would have been our great grandfather. How much, I mean, I barely have anything to do with my dad and he's like only 26 years older than me. I never met my great grandfather, but I don't think I would have much in common with him, right? <laughs> so imagine if I can actually really relate to what Alistair Crowley, how he thought about women, how he thought about foreigners, how he thought about politics, right? Of course, it was completely different from me and from us all. And, but on the, on the other side, also, we want to put him on a pedestal because, you know, he was gender fluid when being gay could have cost him, could have sent him to the jail. I mean, Oscar Wilde famously had to, to leave England and go to live in France because he was gay, he was openly gay, and that was illegal, he was immoral. So, you know, like in Crowley, you have almost like this perfect storm that unfortunately, instead of inspiring maybe like it did at the beginning in the 60s, right? Now it's all about trying to be, trying to, to recreate Crowley the edgelord, right? <laughs> and that's why, that's what you find, you know, on Reddit, forum posts, on, you know, on the, on the most unsavory sides of the, of the internet. It's, it's not easy, especially because then when you join those groups that supposedly are the gatekeepers and uh, the, the gatekeeper is a bit of a loaded term, but that's what they are really. I mean, OTL is set himself to itself to be the gatekeeper of Telema. They you know they famously fought and won a copyright co uh, court case in the uh, in the in the nineteen eighties, so that uh, they they could only use the the the, the, the literary estate of of Crowley. They never did anything with it. Like they only published very few books, but they really fought hard to be. And then. They kind of failed at creating any true community around it, right? Like in many ways, the the OTO really exists 
in a sensible way only in the United States, even if they say they're worldwide. There's barely a presence here in the UK. And I know because I was a member of that, there's even less of a presence in it from when I started my audio experience. And inside these groups, you, you never find anyone who embodies the positive aspects of Crowley. You only find you know, the power, uh, power angry individuals. You only find those who are obsessed with hierarchy and, you know, lording over others. And it's it's really it's really a sad a sad situation all, all all around. And I don't I don't have a solution for that. I really don't. I think maybe the the best way is in time to slowly but continuously shift the focus from speaking about Crowley to speaking about Thelema. Mm. And you know what? It's funny. I say this, and then when I start saying this a few years ago, at the beginning of the, of the lockdown years. So, you know, that period of time where everybody had a podcast, everybody was on, on live streaming like five days a week. Like so, uh, let, let, everybody was on Twitter all the time when it was still called Twitter. Just to say that a lot of people had a lot of opinions. So I say this and, and everybody's like, no, you, can, you cannot divorce Dilemma from Crowley. And it's like, well, if you think so, maybe you should really consider why you were interested in Crowley to begin with. Right. Well, and it also, I mean, there, there's an argument to be made that Crowley was inspired by Rabelais in the yeah. endeavor from the start. So, you know, who, who, I mean, Rabelais, Sir, Dash, Sir, Sir Francis Dashwood and the Hellfire Club, uh, you know, the idea of, of Telema comes, it is, it is possible that it came from, you know, before him, right? A lot of the, of the concepts that you find in Telema, the important concepts, like for instance, the, the Holy Guardian Angel. I always urge everybody to read uh, Miguel Molinos, which was a spirit, a Christian a mystic that became heretic, of course, because uh, you always end up there, but he was the founder, or at least was one of the main figures in quietism. Well, if you read the, I can never remember how it's called in English. One second. Uh, by the way, he wrote a book that is um, that speaks about God. And when you read the way Miguel de Molino speaks about God, well, lo and behold, it's the same concept of the Holy Garden Angel in Telema. So it's definitely possible that Crowley was just the new mouthpiece of an initiatory trend that was growing up across the year, the, the eons and the years, and then you know, fu was fully earthed like a, like a current, like, a, like an electric current that needs to be earthed by him in 1904, uh, so 120 years ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm paused for a moment on quietism. When you said there, you were trying to think of the English word, I'm like, oh, maybe if I type in quietism, I'll find a, an English version of that word. I found quietism, but it does say quietism in philosophy sees the role of philosophy as broadly therapeutic or remedial. Quietist philosophers believe that philosophy has no positive thesis to contribute, but rather that its value is in diffusing confusions in the linguistic and conceptual frameworks of other subjects. This is kind of interesting that I stumbled upon this. I apologize to take a tangent if you were going in a different direction, but the thought that was in my mind as we were kind of bringing up Rabelais and, and talking about Thelema over Crowley 
is really like where Thelema fits into the larger movement of consciousness, right? Because as the past six, seven hundred years since, we'll say, Asia and the Western world have been more and more entangled, Christians have said basically, well, Christ is no longer, you know, front and center. Now we have Siddhartha, we have Buddha, right? The, this, these other concepts have come in to compete with Christianity on the philosophical playing field. And, and I think Crowley and Thelema, I want to know what you, you think about this, but to me, it's almost like they fit into that reaction wave of integrating the Eastern with the Western, right? And then Crowley, that was a big part of his uh, beginning and, and a lot of the theosophists, right? The, or at least, I don't know that Crowley considered himself a theosophist, but that was in the atmosphere at the time. You know, the big note of that was, was integrating the Eastern mysticism, the Hinduistic ideas and whatnot into the, the Christian framework. And I mean, really, if you go back far enough, those ideas in many ways inspired Christianity in the beginning, but it almost seems like we're kind of, we're coming out of this medieval consciousness where we were, we're living in this paradigm uh, of true Christianity and people were born into it. They had no other option. And over the past so many hundred years, at least in, in the Western society, we've kind of those, yeah, those limitations have been sort of lifted a bit. So we, we are going to touch on many different su subjects here. So apologies if I will jump, uh, you know, around subjects as well, right? So you started, you know, quoting what quietism is, and uh, I think you nailed it in the sense that Thelema really is a lot about learning to still the intellectual mind and learning to listen as opposed of, you know, thinking all the time. It, this is not to say that, you know, it's anti-intellectual, quite the opposite, but in many ways, a lot of the intellectual side of it, so the philosophical side of Thelema, comes in, in its early stages. And when I speak of stages, I'm referring um, more or less at the system of grades in DAA. DAA was the magical, mystical order that Crowley founded, received, erted uh, in 1906-1907 as pretty much as a direct continuation to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a telemized version of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Of course, people that are still members of the Golden Dawn these days will absolutely disagree with it, but let's say that Crowley, that was Crowley's idea, right? And the AA really is the most important system in Thelema. The OTO is maybe the most famous or infamous or notorious, but the AA is the real deal, right? Is where you really learn about magic and mysticism. Right. And magic and mysticism really are the two sides of the same coin in Thelema. As the, you know, the, the, the visible object of worship in Thelema is Rahurkuit or Horus, and Horus has Two sides, Rarakuit, which is the martial, the sun, the, the sun martial version of it. So it's the speech, but the speech as a counterpoint in Horaparkat or Hippocrates, which is silence. And here, here is where we're going with this, right? So in many ways, at first you engage with magical practices, you, you engage with rituals, you engage with studying, a lot of a lot of intellectual studying. 
That is maybe this is the speech part of dilemma, but because you want to get to the other point, you want to move from magic into mysticism. You want to go from speech to silence. And that is, and, and the, 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 the passing point between the two, speech into silence, is the, that fundamental initiation, which is called the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. And again, this is where we, we go back to quietism and the fact that in the, in the spiritual guide, that's how it's, how it's name, Molinos really speaks of God the same way in Telema we speak of the Holy Guardian Angel. Okay? Now, you obviously could, could correctly say that you know, the, there's been a lot of reactions to Christianity in the sense that I would say that it's been like that because as the world became bigger in the sense that you know um, information became more and more available you know starting from the um you know the invention of the printing up until the you know the information age we live in today well we realized that there were many more options out there right it was not just christianity um i would say this is also why you know over the years the 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 chokehold of the vatican and of the christian church so Catholicism and then uh, you know Orthodox Christianity in the East and then you know all the various evangelical denominations in mostly in the states really they 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 started to lose their they started to lose ground because you know people just realize there's more to it out there and a lot of those other uh, expressions of mysticism and religion and magic which for me are three aspects. Of, they're not the same, right? They are three aspects of, or rather, they're three tools for making sense of the idea of spiritual evolution, right? Um, I would say that religion is the entry level, right? The one, the, the, the very, the super passive one where people explain, you know, you, you observe rituals and, you know, the priest or the priestess in when it's, when, so when there is like those religious aspects that allow for a priestess will maybe tell you how, what to do and how to make sense of the divine. And then the magical practice is the next step, right? When you become a priest or a priestess in many ways. And then the mystical side is when you, the mystical part of, of this ladder is when, well, you almost like you let go of everything because you become, you have become one with the divine. So these three aspects are found in many other religions. I mean, Telema is not, I would say Telema is not original in almost nothing, <laughs> to be fair. Mm. Uh, the power of Telema is, bringing down that syncretism mm -hmm. that was originally um, you know, willed by theosophy, as you again correctly stated. Uh, Crowley was not a theosophist, but he was very aware of theosophy. Famously, he made, uh, he, he recognized Helena Blavatsky as a Magister Templi, so as a quite an advanced initiate in his own system of DAA. And I mean, Crowley used to do this a lot. Crowley yeah. uh, considered like um, advanced initiates also Lao Tse and Mohammed and many other like big names, right? Maybe in a way, just some, some, you know, some uh, uncharitable readings of this would be, would want to see him just trying to appropriate everything yeah. so that, you know, you could be, you could say, hey, you know, what like, I'm, I'm part of the, of the good guys, right? But also, or, or you can say that it's true that, you know, there is one truth at the center of a wheel, but that wheel has infinite spokes and you can get to the center in many different ways. You don't even have to stay on the same spoke forever, right? You can move from one to another, to another, to another. 
I think that would make a very complex uh, path, but you can. And at, at the, but at the end of the day, you know, there is one truth and it's at the center of this wheel. And so Crowley really thought this, this way. And Telema is, and I wrote about this in the book and I wrote about this in my courses. I always, I always insist on this. You know, when we think of, of Telemic magic, you know, magic with the famously, like he, he had the decay at the end of the term magic. He would say that he did it because he wanted it to, to be different so people could see that it's not just, you know, stage illusionism, which at the time was very, very popular, especially in the, in the British Empire, so especially in England. Um, but also, you got to understand that magic with decay is a very unique blend of practices. In Telemic magic, you will have to practice and, in fact, master the eight limbs of yoga. So, you know, farting from the yama and yama up until samadhi. In fact, samadhi is the knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel. At least it's the, the full realization of the knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel. Uh, famously, the most important limb of yoga that we use a lot in Telemic magic is pranayama, control of breathing. Because the idea is that, you know, we are surrounded by energy and this energy is embodied in the breathing, in the breath, right? It's what keeps us alive. In order to, to do other feats of magic, we need to start there. But then he brings in also all that, all that he knew about the Western tradition uh, and all that was available to him at the time, and which was a very, very, almost like a cauldron of different things stirring and bubbling and coming up and down to the surface. You had like grimoire magic and Salomonic magic, and you had, you know, the everything that they knew at the time of Sumerian magic, of, of Egyptian magic, uh, and then all everything that he knew at the time of, um, you know, Hellenistic magic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of this comes together in Telema as an incredibly syncretic um, system. Again, a lot of people in this day and age, you know, where everybody's always very offended by everything, they said they will say, I mean, again, I remember you know, cancel culture trends on TikTok, where people would say, oh, Telema is, is terrible because it's all cultural appropriation. Tell me something that's not cultural appropriation, right? Like the history yeah. of humanity goes on through, well, and, you know, through syncretism. That's and, how it is. Right? And I think the, the, the proponents of that, you know, that reaction, <clears throat> they're very short-sighted in the sense that they're doing that out of a, out of a superficial sort of like, oh, well, we don't want appropriation because appropriation steals from you know, other cultures and we want to respect other cultures. Whereas I've always thought of syncretism as, as more of an acknowledgement that we are all human beings. We are all sharing a common story and experience. So why are we limiting ourselves to only the story from those who share the same skin color as us or the same cultural background as us, right? Why, why aren't we acknowledging that all of this is equal and all of this is true and all minds are made equal. So why aren't all souls made equal in that way? Right? Like obviously there are disabilities and, and so on and so forth. But I think the, the impulse of syncretism is a human impulse. It's a, it's an impulse that wants to make sense of the whole and not leave anyone out. I, you know, I agree with you. I would also say that there it's undeniable that a lot of the of the cultural vibes of the time 
uh, talking about, you know, late Victorian and early Edwardian era, it was the idea that, you know, the British Empire had conquered the world, so they had the right to everything, right? And Crowley, in fact, it was, I think Crowley was very respectful of the many different cultures he got in touch with. He was deeply respectful of um, Muslim culture. He was deeply respectful of Chinese culture. He was deeply respectful of Egyptian culture. But he, it's undeniable that he saw himself as as a Brit, right? I mean, as a as member of the, as an, an aristocrat of the British Empire. He wasn't really an aristocrat, but he saw himself as an aristocrat of the British Empire, right? So he had this in this sense of superiority, almost an innate sense of superiority, right? Unfortunately, you see some of this again nowadays, right? And there's a lot of telemites out there that are still very unsavory. And so let's put it like this. I will also say that while it's true that you know, it, our religious understanding, our mystical understanding, our magical understanding moves from generation to generation via syncretism. That's undeniable. That's how we enrich our practices. We should always also be respectful of those practices that elect to be closed, right? Closed practices in the sense that you only have to be init properly initiated into it. And there will be uh, groups that, uh, that, elect not to initiate anybody who is not part of their, uh, you know, of, of their ethnicity, okay? There are ethno-religions. Famously, I don't know, I don't know if you know, but the, the Yazidi of North Iran, uh, which is, it's an ethno-religious group that has been, you know, it's been basically, they've been trying to genocide them for, for centuries now, mm. unfortunately. But it's interesting because, you know, they are really mentioned a lot of times as almost like the um, the repositories of some incredibly hidden knowledge, right? Kenneth Grant speaks about them. Famously, Thomas Carlson, which is the still living and still writing um, founder of a group called Dragon Rouge, claims to have been initiated by the Yazidi in their cults in the early 90s. Now, it's, it's, it's bullshit <laughs> because the Yazidi only initiate Yazidis and Thomas Carson must have been like 14 or 15 at the time. So, you know, like when you, when you, when you are a member of, of, of this wider community called culture, right? And you come to see these things, you, you realize that on one side, we we literally have heard on on you know on on the obsession with cancel canceling everything that's not um, that's not appropriate and calling everything appropriation. On the other side, maybe we got there. Maybe the pendulum swung that far because you know since the nineties you have a Swedish guy that said he was initiated by the Yazidis when he was fourteen, and you know it's not true. It's 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 patently false, but. Uh, I don't know, maybe nobody foresaw the fact in the 90s, uh, they, they didn't foresaw the fact that, you know, we would live in a, in such a, like um, widespread in information culture where pretty much everybody now can actually study the Yazidis and know about it. But anyway, I went from a little bit of a tangent, but I, I wanted to make this point. No, it is a great point to make. And I think it it's like, it, you know, it's the, the progress of things as we become more integrated more interconnected yeah the the truth is going to become more and more transparent and maybe those spokes of of the wheel 
that we were that you were describing earlier, you know, I, I love that analogy. I think it makes so much sense. Maybe we'll be able to, you know, <laughs> zero in on that bullseye mm-hmm. at the center, right? But yeah, yeah. It seems like that's that's inherently what Crowley was uh seeking in some ways. Obviously drugs and vices got in the way in, in many senses. You know, his, he was definitely a libertine. Like he enjoyed all of that. There's, there's right. no, there's no denying it, right? At the same time, I would like to make a point. You know how when we speak of Crowley, almost invariably you end up. Uh, once upon a time, you end up reading. Now you you see like TikTok videos about people say, "Oh, Crowley died alone, penniless, addict, uh, addicted to heroin, addicted to cocaine, and nobody wanted to speak with him. He had no money. He was basically like living under." under a bridge that could not be further from the truth. I made, I I don't think I ever had any viral video on TikTok. I had one and it was this one where it was me like debunking this idea because we know, because we have a lot of evidence from people that know him, uh, photographic evidence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Crowley died surrounded by his friends and his disciples and spent his last years in this nice resort in Hastings here in the UK by the sea called Netherwood. It doesn't exist anymore. It's been demolished a few years ago, but um, he was pretty much like, this was a sort of like a proto-communist commune or socialist commune, I would say. So, you know, a lot of older uh, Bohemian were there and uh, basically they were all living together. He had his own, his own very spacious room. Uh, famously had uh, like he, he was keeping when he died they found a quite a quite a substantial sum of money in cash you know not say like he he probably hid them under the mattress pretty much and um, he was constantly visited by his disciples and was he addicted to heroin and, and cocaine yes because he had a lot of problems like um, as he was asthmatic uh, he had problems with lungs all kind of problems and we, we all know by now that Victorian and Edwardian doctors used to give heroin and cocaine right. as a way to, you know, to combat these illnesses at the time and got him addicted. <laughs> like he wrote a book called uh, Confessions of a Drug Fiend that kind of tells us the story of him trying to get out of these addictions multiple times and failing at times and then relapsing and trying again. So again, it's a combination, right? Like he definitely loved sex. He definitely was not the best partner in the sense that he was a terrible father. He fathered several uh, children and they all died dead now, but they, he fathered several children and none of, none of the children wanted to have, wanted to do anything to do with him, nor really he cared about him. He was very, he was anti-abortion. So he was really adamant on the idea that, you know, once you have planted the seed, the seed has to come because he thought that that would be like, well, like a soul was called into, into this world. Of course, I mean, I, I have problems with that, but that's what he thought. So like I say, he wasn't a good father. He was a libertine. Was he not, was he like, a, did he die a penniless alone and dejected? No, not at all, right? So that's another, another story about Crowley that, I don't know, maybe one day we'll be able to, we'll be able to move away from these usual tropes and I don't know, maybe discuss something else. 
Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you you said that because as much as I've read about Crowley, I I fell into the disinformation and assumed that, oh yeah, drugs ruined his life and he was probably pretty sad towards the end of his life. When, I mean, the the way you just laid it out, it it actually makes more sense that that wouldn't be the case because if you think about it, he... He wrote so much, you know, he had many mm-hmm. people underneath him and he, he grew, he, he grew, you know, uh, a movement in many ways. So Absolutely. yeah, Absolutely. I, I would not be surprised to find there were people who wanted to take care of him. There were many, like literally we, there's a, there's a book by, uh, let me just tell you the title. Nerevud. So the title is Nerevud. Uh, and it's a book by, I, I cannot find it, that's cool, Netherwood by Anthony Clayton. There you go. Uh, and then by Anthony Clayton, it's not available anymore. You have to look it on, uh, you know, on the secondary market. But Anthony Clayton wrote this book, Netherwood, The Last Resort of Aleister Crowley. It's, it will tell you everything you need to know with fully, you know, f- fully proven and documented proof of his last years at Netherwood, right? And um also remember, as you said, he wrote a lot and he wrote a lot in the last years of his life. He wrote the book of thought, like, you know, one of his, I consider it to be his magnum opus because everything, even more than book four, like even more than magic interior practice, which is the book that most people know him from, but in the book of thought, which is his mystical understanding of the tarot, well, he synthesized the entirety of the lemma in it. And it's really, really, it, it's a lot to take. Um, you know, one of my courses is on the, I could, it's called Tothar Magic because I realized that, you know, to make fully sense of it, I needed to teach it, right? Like, and, and I think I did it. I did a decent job at doing that. But the problem is that there's so much into it. Like he literally like condensed 70 years of his life into one final book. But not, not only that, he also wrote Magic Without Tears, which really, is, I mean, it's not so much as a book, but it's a series of letters that were basically written towards one of his students at the time. And it's some of the most clear and concise and, and enlightening writing he ever did. And this is really not the writing, no, none of this is the writing of somebody who's like, you know, a junkie, right? Like, I, I still hear people say that he died a junkie, right? And it's like, folks, no. I mean, you can you, you can hate Crowley because whatever reason you decide to hate him for, but at least hate him for the real reasons, right? I mean, maybe say that he was a terrible father, an absent father. Maybe say that he completely squandered his multi-million inheritance, right? Like, you know, hate him for all these reasons. That's fine. Like, we can discuss that. But let's 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 stop with the fantasy, right? Another famous fantasy is that he was a pedophile or a, a serial murderer because he famously, you know, he was a he was a troll, right? He, I think in this day and age, he would have loved to be on Fortune, uh, like trolling people around. And he famously wrote in several instances that, you know, in in every year he would murder fifteen thousand uh, children, and he was speaking about masturbation the children being sperm, right? So, so it's like, and again, we know these things. This is not inferred. We're not like trying to make excuse of that. There's so much evidence because he was so, he was a graphomaniac, right? He, he left us so much, so many diaries that it's so in there, right? And um, unfortunately, I think that when we, in, in, again, in the, in the age of information we live in, 
nothing that we're seeing right now makes for a snappy headline or a TikTok video. It's so much it's so much powerful to say Crowley, the the heroin junkie that was also a pedophile pedophile killer. Right? It makes imagine that like viral. Right. Right. But unfortunately, truth, uh, truth doesn't care about virality. Truth is something else. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because I, I wonder if like how Crowley would react now if he were to like peek his head through dimensional window and just observe that for a day. Because I imagine in his time, the the dogma of Christianity, the dogma of society and, and culture would have had a, a stronger in some ways and maybe a looser in some ways grip on the minds of, of the average person. Whereas mm -hmm. today, yes, we, we almost, we almost have, you know, we've taken a 180 in, in a big sense, but we're, we're still just as superstitious as we may have been back then. And yeah. in a sense, Crowley almost represents like this archetype that I don't know was quite available back then. Maybe they would have described it in more mythological terms, but he almost fits into the conspiracy theorists uh, sor black sorcerer archetype. Like he's become like this black wizard of nefarity that, you know, no matter what your conspiracy theory is, you do a little bit of Wikipedia research and somehow you find that Crowley just happened to be there that, you know, month. So it has to be him and, you know, yada, yada. And I've fallen down that trap before. I've read some convincing theories that say, you know, Crowley did such and such and led to, you know, such and such happening. There, there may be some truth to that. We know, uh, you know, I've talked to Richard Spence, who's written a book about how Crowley oh, yeah. is, it was involved yeah. with, you know, intelligence, which is a little bit of a, a different side of the conversation. There is some esoteric and spooky stuff going on there. Maybe, uh, again, a little bit different, but as far as Crowley's persona and, and now his his maybe undeserved reputation as this like evil villain, I mean, what do you think he, he would have thought of that? You know, I think he honestly, I think he would have loved it because, again, he was definitely somebody who reveled into the attention. Like I, I'm not a psychologist, so I can say I cannot diagnose Crowley and say he was a narcissist. Like I'm not going to fall into that rabbit hole. But you know what? Um, it kind of fits the bill of a narcissist. If you really read his entire, uh, I mean, if you really study his story, right? So I think he would have loved it. Remember that this is the man that actually loved the fact that the Daily Mail, which is a terrible tabloid rag that still exists to this day, and still to this day only publishes, you know, inflammatory bullshit, pardon my France, my French, he loved the fact that the Daily Mail called him the most wickedest man in the world. He loved the fact that the Daily Mail called him the man we'd like to hang because the Daily Mail was talking about him, right? Now, I, you know, as, a, as an author, as somebody who, who lives in this, uh, you know, by making, by being a freelance, if, if you will, that's who I am right now, like I would love to have some sort of controversy on the Daily Mail as well, because you know what? It means more sales. And Crowley, at some point in his life, he realized that he didn't have 
money anymore, but it still had the appetite for a lavish lifestyle. And so, you know, like it was, it was always trying to, to game the system by appealing to situations, you know, to, to the tabloid and to the, to the sensational. I think he would have loved it, to be fair. I also think that he would have been on like on live streams, on podcasts, constantly saying, hey, but at the same time, you know, this is what the truth of what I'm doing here, because that's also what he used to do, right? He used to be, you know, he would, he would be always reposting, writing about the, you know, the people that hated him, but then he would do it with incredibly, with, with an incredible wit, incredible smarts. And I mean, famously, what his best novel, Moonchild, uh, which like I like to say all the time, it's more, much more than a novel. It's, it's a magical grimoire. Like if you know to read between the lines, you can learn to do a lot of practical magic by reading Moonchild. Well, it, it, it's pretty much like a, a hit piece against uh, you know his ex ex companions in the Golden Dawn, right? He, he would he would use, I think he would be on I don't know on pod, on Joe Rogan. I I can definitely see uh, Crowley going on Joe Rogan defending himself against you know the um, frankly the nonsense of conspiracy theories that by the way they always tend to come from the extreme far right Christians, extreme Christian far right, you either get that or you get the, the extreme left that just, um, you know, try to downplay him as a, as an idiot, pretty much. I think he would be very, very happy to, to pick, you know, to pick these people up one by one uh, and possibly, you know, being, you know, the larger in life character, maybe it would be on Joe Rogan. <laughs> that, would be, that would something, I mean, I don't like Joe Rogan. I, I don't, I don't really watch him, but that's, that's an episode I would watch. <laughs> really? Yeah. Interesting. And yeah, I, I, I think there are people who fit the role that have been on Joe Rogan, maybe doing things like in a different sense. I don't know. Elon Musk maybe has mm -hmm. a, a Crowley and sort of maybe not explicitly, but in, in a, in a, archetypical kind of way yeah i think he wants to be i'm not sure he has the, <laughs> the wits to pull it off but yeah right. he, he definitely has the money right there's, there's no there's no denying that yeah and the body shape but that's also true <laughs> <laughs> to be fair though i gotta say like and i don't know if you've ever seen like crowley's because we you know when we think of crowley we think of you know the older crowley the, right the fat crowley, around crowley, crowley right? right yeah he used to be in insane shape Right. If you see him, there's pictures of him in on the K2. Basically, it's like he him naked, pretty much in in a pool of water uh, on the mountains. Like that man was ripped. Right. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I have seen that photo, and and that's that's something that I think you know with all of the you know sensationalism affront on they don't people don't really actually look and and try to understand his story. He was a mountaineer, and and that. In my life, I mean, I, not that I've mountaineered enough to say I can, you know, climb K2 or anything like that, but I, I've been up some pretty high mountains for, for where I live, and it is a spiritual experience. It, it takes Absolutely. A, a, Absolutely. a huge amount of discipline, uh, courage even, strength. Yeah, yeah, courage. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. He was doing this when nobody else did it. Like, he right. was the first person on K2, like the first uh, expedition. Like he famously failed, he famously possibly let people die, which is, you know, a horrible thing. But I mean, he was, he had balls of steel because also remember that there was no GPS. 
There was no helicopters that can come and save you. It was nothing. It was you and the mountain. So, yeah, most people, as you said, most people completely gloss over these things because they just, like, repeat the usual tired tropes that start, I think they started surfacing in the 80s, really, during the first satanic panic. I think we are really going through a second satanic panic right now. But the first satanic panic, the famous one in the 80s, that's when the the blame started to be put on Crowley as opposed of Anthem LaVey, which used to be the previous, or and Charles Manson, right? They used to be the previous, and you say, like, uh, scapegoats. I mean, in case of Charles Manson, it was like, it was not a scapegoat. The guy was a fucking murderer. But in case of LaVey, I mean, LaVey was just a, a, fun, a fun guy, right? That's really like that. And then, you know, it's just after that, after the, the 60s and the, then the 70s, rediscovered Crowley, and the 80s rolls out, rolls, and, you know, everybody is now, putting the finger on Crowley. And it never, it never ended really, right? It's always been, it's always been like this. It's been, it's been the forever scapegoat. Uh, I don't know. I've, I guess, again, I guess, I guess he would, he would have loved it though, because he was just, he just loved the attention. Well, and yeah, I, I think, I think part of his goal again, it, it's, it's being spread by, you know, people have this reaction, this visceral reaction, whether it's because they're so comfortable with their worldview or they're, you know, mobilized to, to, to try to, you know, fight whatever doesn't fit their worldview. But they, they pin it on him when really what he was doing, I think, in, in the, you know, zoomed out sense... <clears throat> take his personal life out of it, just look at what he's written as an author and what he contributed to the literary consciousness of humanity. He's, he's bringing ideas that for a long time were hidden within esoteric groups, you know, behind, you know, uh, paths of initiation, multiple stages of degrees. People would have to, you know, commit secrecy before learning these things. And, I mean, would you agree outside of the kind of, I don't know, the subtext that you got to learn to read through, he is kind of unveiling a lot. You know, he's kind of spilling the beans, to put it plainly. What do you think of that? I think he definitely did that compared to what it came before him, right? He famously published all the secrets of the Golden Dawn, but I think he did it out of spite, Right. Because he, another thing that most people don't understand, especially those who are very critical about him, and, I, and I'm thinking that right now, not so much at the you know, conspiracy theorists that we were talking up until now, but I'm thinking about other magicians that come from different um, traditions, like the Golden Dawn one. He really wanted to believe in the Golden Dawn, right? He really, really, really thought that he finally found this secret group of masters that were secretly guiding humanity towards spiritual evolution and truth. And then, you know, a few, few, couple of years in, he realizes that it's just a bunch of middle-class bourgeoisie that has, you know, all embroiled, embroiled in petty fights with each other. And, and he, got, he got very, very dis disillusioned by that, right? And so, famously, 
he got out of the Golden Dawn. Well, he, he was, people would say he's got expelled by the Golden Dawn. That's not true because he, he was actually, you know, he, he was ex expelled by William Butler Yeats, the poet, but then he became, you know, almost like the agent of Mathers, which was the the the, the chief adept that that Yeats and his faction had, had issues with at that point. We're talking about now 1900s, early 1900s, very early 1900s. And then, you know, for many years, after all this, this, uh, this squabble settled, he, he just leaves everything behind because he was so disillusioned with everything that he lived as a Buddhist for several years. I mean, it was not up until the reception of the Book of the Law in 1904. But then again, really, when he founded the AA in, in 1906 and 1907, that he got back into magic. And that's when he started publishing the Equinox. And in the Equinox, he kind of out of spite, you know, <laughs> published everything that uh, the Golden Dawn kept secret up until that point, because he made the point that now, you know, with the reception of the Book of the Law, also known as Liber Alba Legis, a new era had born, right? A new eon has been installed. And so many of those rituals were not, it's almost like, think of it as, you know, as an operating system, almost like a new operating system had been installed unto reality itself. And so, you know, you could study the old operating system, you could still use it, but, you know, if you wanted the best, um, the, the most efficient functions, well, you should actually leave that behind and move to study dilemma. I'm telling you this because while it's true that in this sense he was very much like somebody who tried to remove the veil of secrecy from the experience of initiation, oh well, he was absolutely adamant that everything that was telemic had to be kept secret and you know it be you know beyond the veil of initiation, right? Um, another thing that most people don't realize because again in this day and age it's so easy to access everything that Crowley wrote that most of what you will read this day and age is used to be uh, initiatory secret, right? Pretty much only the, the stuff you will find in the Equinox, the stuff you will find in the in Liber ABA, Magic Interim Practice, and the stuff you will find in Book of Thought, where Crowley meant them to be for public knowledge, even if and if you since you read Liber ABA, you will know when you read when you read book four, there are there are bits and pieces that won't make sense unless you've read other books, and even those other books are have need to be explained because maybe they are riddled by you know metaphors and analogies that unless you have the code to understand, you will just not get. And that that was Crowley, kind of like hiding everything, you know, putting everything beyond the veil of secrecy again. Because, you know, truth be told is that this material needs dedication, right? Um, for instance, uh, let's see if I can actually explain, explain this or convince you about this. One of the most sought-after secrets of Telema is the secrets of the nine degree of the OTO. Famously, it's sex magic, right? In the, idea, in the idea that in the ninth degree, which is the final degree of OTO, you're finally taught how to perform sex magic. And of course, a lot of people want to do sex magic because it's sex, everybody wants to fuck, everybody, they don't understand that it's not about sex at all. It's about using sex and the orgasm to focus the will at some point. So first of all, people just miss that point. 
But then is that I could literally read from read it right now from emblems and mode of use, from the Arte Magica, from the Omunculo, which are the instructions of the nine degree. But and I can send them to you later if you want. <laughs> you will unless you understand you, unless you have had you've studied the entire corpus and you are fully aware of all the allegories and that are presented to you, you won't make sense of them because they're written in the same uh, style of the alchemical mutus liber, right? The the silent books of alchemy. Those books were just, they're famously like the alchemists used to print these books, but these books were only images. There were no words in it. That's why they're called silent books. And that's kind of the same thing the Crowley used to do. And that's kind of the same thing you should find in every um, living tradition. And this is because the secrets of initiation really are meant to be secreted from yourself. Think of them as something almost like a, a mystical juice that you have to extract from yourself. No one can tell you the secrets. Like in, famously in the first degree of audio, there's a line that goes, the true secrets are incommunicable. That's not, this is in Minerva actually. So even degree zero. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's been some years now. But, but it, pretty much like in one of the early degrees uh, that you go through the audio, they tell you right away, it's like, you know what? There's no, there's no secrets we're going to tell you because you have to come to them. In time, the more you engage with all these systems, the more these allegories, these images, these ideas will make sense. And they will almost, what they do is that they kind of plant a seed inside, maybe what we would call the subconscious. And maybe, you know, if we want to use a Jungian framework, they're going to like interact with archetypes that are part of our human experience. And then ideas will pop up and then you will understand things at some point. And then you will have, know how to put them into practice. This is how all, how initiation works. A lot of like a lot of conspiracy theorists this, in this day and age, or everybody who's approaches who approaches the magic and initiation from the outside, they really do think that by knowing uh, what's written in the I don't know in the 177th degree of I don't know what the order of whatever they will get truth. Truth only comes from your engagement with these practices. Everything that's written, it's a prop to the truth. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I went rambling a little bit, but I thought I hope I, I hope I made the point. <laughs> no, you you weren't rambling. I'm following. I'm very engaged, and and I, I really love the point you're making because you're right. You know, the 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 modern average person, at, maybe in America. I don't, I can't speak for. Oh, trust me, it's everywhere. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I think, I think the average person, you know, when they encounter this stuff because of the edge lords, you know, they, they've been given this image of what magic and the occult is. Um, and it, I don't know, it does, it does kind of make that side of it tantalizing, but on the other end of it, what you just described about the process of initiation being something that, you know, because I think the average person, they think of initiation as like, oh, you're going to be, you know, mind controlled by some cult that's going to make you forget everything about your previous 
consciousness mm-hmm. or persona, and now you're this new person. When yeah, maybe there's a transformation that takes place, but to me, from from what I've learned and from what I've gathered from what you've said even just now, is that it's it's something that is inherently intuitive, meaning that Absolutely. it comes from Absolutely. within and, and you just need to be put in the right set and setting by others who have been there before so that it can come through you, right? This this sort of absolutely uh, that's like exactly a butterfly it. growing its wings, you know? It's it, 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 exactly like that. Like it, it really is the idea of the cocoon, right? Like you need to put yourself into into a cocoon, right? And this is also because there there's an element where, especially if you want to engage with higher types of initiation, the kind of you know the big ones like again the knowledge and conversation of the weird angel. There is an, an element of seclusion from the rest of the world, not in the sense that, you know, you have to become a monk or disappear, but you have to look inward as opposed of outward, right? But then again, this, the rituals of initiation that most people think about, like, again, the, one, the, the social ones, the ceremonial ones that you will find in, in any group you can join. And from my perspective, those are like really like the outer court, the, 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 the early grades right, of initiation proper. Even if we're talking about nine degree of OTO, so like the highest one in the OTO, it's still elementary school, really, in the in the true ladder of initiation. Everything you do in a social setting, it's elementary school, if I if you can use this horrible analogy. But it is that like you put yourself in a cocoon and you let the symbology do its magic. And really is that that magic really is for you to realize something that was already inside of you, like coming, almost like remembering things that you were you were born with, but you forgot. Or maybe, I don't know, dorm, I'm going to say something, and of course, if there's anybody who listening to this, which is conspiratorially demanded, will love it, but it's almost like a dormant code, right? Because I do believe that humanity is coded with the ability to transcend the human experience. I do strongly believe from my experiences, so it's not so much a belief, it's a gnosis, it's a knowledge, that you know we are born humans, we maybe we decide to incarnate as humans to have the experience of space of space and time and life and death and duality in general. But in fact, the moment we incarnate, we already have inside of us the code for our enlightenment and awakening, right? remembering who we truly are. It's almost like we don't need the red pill or the blue pill. We already have them inside of us. We just have to decide to engage with them. The problem is that it's it's not as easy as taking a pill. Like we all, you know, Matrix is a great movie. I love him. I love it. But I mean, I might have problems with the way it became culturally relevant in the last few years. But I, it's not about just getting a pill. And there's no one who can feed you a pill and you'll become mind controlled. You have to decide to engage in an ex- excruciatingly long and complex system of practices that are meant to strip everything you know about yourself till you get to who you truly are. And that is the code that's, you know, that you're born with. That from that point onward, you'll be able to see the world for what it truly is. And Again, this is something that we say in Telema, and I again, I, this is something I believe because, of course, I'm here. I am. I haven't died yet, but I believe that once you've done this process, at the moment of death, you get to decide what to do. 
you get to decide if you want to come back to the to this life if you get to decide if you want to experience life somewhere else you get to decide if you want to experience something else that at this point i cannot even fathom but i will fathom the moment i go back outside of this experience of life um Hey, this is this is strictly like something that you find in uh, in Telema in the eleventh collect of the Gnostic Mass. It's a it's a beautiful uh, the Gnostic Mass. It's possibly the most beautiful public ritual of Telema. And uh, there's a moment where it pretty much tells you that one of the one of the superpowers that Telema gives you, if you decide to engage with it, it's it completely clears you of the fear of death. You just because you come to understand that death is inevitable. Death is the other side of life. There's no way we can avoid it, nor we should avoid it, because at the moment we we pass the gates of death, that's when the true fun begins in many ways. So I wish conspiracy theorists would speak about this as opposed of Crowley killing children, aka masturbating. But hey, again, it's not going to make TikTok videos, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and again, I think Crowley, he's just become a, a scapegoat for something that you know, it is real and needs to be addressed. And, and maybe that, you know, is the fault more of the American government who aids and abets, you know, people like Jeffrey Epstein rather than, uh, you know, like there are real evil villains out there. And I think people are, are, you know, they're, they're responding to something that's real and, and making sense of it in a way that unfortunately it becomes fantasy when you start trying to place blame on people who live, you know, 50 mm -hmm. years ago. Right. Like he, yeah, he yeah. so it is, it is a, a, an interesting position to be in. And I wonder how much of the occult has been weaponized by people who have allegiances to the, the conservative or the traditional um, authoritarian arm of society because they know that they can get this sort of divisionary reaction where, you know, the, the people cling to tradition and question what's new and the people who are already ingrained in what's new, you know, they react the same way people who've been called heretics always react, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's this kind of social dynamic that seems to be, you know, being pulled on from almost like outside forces but to to segue away from conspiracy i don't know how comfortable you are in that lane i am if you'd like to continue talking about that more than uh, welcome I, to I, we can definitely do no cool cool some people are are touchy with that i just i want to be respectful but i Right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are taking a quick break to thank our sponsors. Big shout out to the Hit Kit. Use the promo code Crazy and check out all of the great items that the Hit Kit has made here in America. Really cool devices, gadgets, doohickeys to keep whatever you're smoking on safe and sound. So go over to the Hit Kit on Instagram or HitKit.us. Check out all their products. Get yourself one with a custom design on it and keep whatever you're smoking on safe and sound a blunt a joint whatever it is uh the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast and the hit kit got your back so use the promo code crazy and upgrade your edc until then don't complain about reaching in your pocket and finding a crumpled up blunt or joint or whatever throw it in a hit kit 
All right, now let's go to some dynamic ads and we'll be right back after this quick break. When it comes to uh, or the, what a real Thelemite is, you know, Kenneth Grant is somebody who took a lot of inspiration from Aleister Crowley and started the Typhonian Order, right? Which mm -hmm. is yeah. self-initiation. Would Do you think that this kind of is more in line with the spirit of Thelema is, is what you're saying, or is that something altogether different? Did Kenneth kind of take it to a different level? So I would like to, you know, preface this by saying that I'm not a member of the Typhonian order. I know I was in touch with Kenneth Grant via a letter uh, 20 years ago. I translated one of his book in Italian against the light. And so, you know, we were uh, exchanging some letters at the time and that I still treasure. He, I never met him, but he, he came and from, from the letter we were taught, we were exchanging, he came across as an incredibly, you know, witty and smart and a, a gentleman, really, right? A classic English gentleman. Um, I know the people who are, I know several people who are a member of the Tifonian Order. And again, they, they're really fine people, right? In, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a world where we're surrounded by strange, maybe from the time problematic characters, none in the Tifonian Order has ever created any problem whatsoever that I, that I can attest, right? So this is an important preface I like to say, because usually... My, uh, the Tifonian Order and Kenneth Grant is seen by what I would call them mainstream telemites, if it's even possible to talk about mainstream telemites, because telemites is such a minuscule uh, movement. But, and by that I mean members of Ordo Templariantis. Um, I should also insist in saying that when we speak of Ordo Templariantis OTO, which is the, the, it's, the OTO really is started as a paramasonic uh, organization. So pretty much like... It was a group of Freemasons from Germany came together, wanted to do Freemasonry with Egyptian rituals and with, uh, with yoga and Tantra. And then Crowley comes along and by various um, uh, you know, ups and downs, he becomes the worldwide leader and not recognized by all of them. So there are still like movements, OTO groups, in, especially in Germany, that have never recognized Crowley and they went on to do their own things minuscule groups, like irrelevant in the sense of great scope of things, but they still exist. And anyway, like Crowley tries to capitalize on the OTO all his life because Freemasonry was very popular at the time. He failed repeatedly because he was really bad at organizing anything that didn't involve him, any people more than just him. Let's put it like that. Uh, and so long story short, the OTO kind of disappears, right? Uh, up until in the 70s, he got resurrected. Uh, and then famously in 1985, a group of Americans wins a landmark case where they get to use the copyright. They get they basically had the copyright of the, the logo of OTO, the lamen of OTO, and the literary estate of Crowley. So when we speak of when people think of OTO, they already mistakenly think that the OTO must have been this massively sprawling organization that uh, you know, some conspiracy theorists will say that you know controls the world, the Illuminati, etc. 
it's all bullshit. They never had more than maybe 100, 100 members worldwide. And nowadays, there are no more than 2,000 members worldwide, right? That's, that, that's what we're talking about. Um, when I left in 2018, there were only 32 members of the nine degree worldwide. So you can imagine how small it is, right? I also say this because they, this group of Americans that, you know, took over the OTO and pretty much restarted the OTO in the 80s, tried many ways of establishing it as a respectable religion, right? Crowley famously never wanted Telema to be a religion. Crowley famously never really, I mean, in Magic Without Tears, he even has like a, one of his classic um, remarks where he say like, writing this letter, say, well, if you want to call it a religion, do it. I don't understand why you want to do it, but do what you want, right? Crowley, tr- Crowley did create um, a, br- a religious branch of Telema called the Ecclesiastica Catholica, but he famously never wanted it to be connected to the OTO. He wanted these things to be separate, right? And he never, he never really expanded on the AGC or Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica. The Americans put it all together because what they tried to do, they really tried to create a megachurch, right? Something that was respectable, religious, famously, so that they can claim tax-exempt status, and they have been doing it ever since. Um, but by doing this, they also started pretty much to to shit on every other every other aspect of Telema. There's there's still a very big Telema uh, community in Brazil, but most Americans don't know about it because, you know, the leaders of, of OTO, there are still the same people from 85 to now, almost 40 years later, they always like downplayed the, the Brazilians are crazy. They're all crazy people. And they did the kind of the same with Kenneth Grant. So this, sorry, I, I had to take like this long detour to tell you that Kenneth Grant was, first of all, sec- the final, the last secretary of Lester Crowley. He was a very young man in his 20s when he met Crowley. Crowley was in, dying in his 70s. And he acted as his secretary in his last few years. And Kenneth Grant received um, like uh, the, the, the nine degree directly from Crowley. And then he received a patent to establish the OT, um, an OTO uh, lodge in in the UK. When Crowley died, his, success, his designated successor, Karl Germer, that was a German living in the United States, for a few years accepted Grant, and then at some point just expelled Grant, because the truth of the matter is that um, the OTO was meant to be a dues-collecting group, like all Masonic groups are, and Grant didn't care about collecting dues. He wanted things to be free for all. I have some problems with that, but that's what, what Grant wanted to do, right? And so Carl Germer, on those bases, expelled him. Now, Grant didn't care about it, and he went on to keep calling himself uh, the, the leader of OTO after the, the death of, of Carl Germer. And pretty much from the 60s till his death, in, well, till 2009, he kept kept calling himself the true OTO, right? Now, 2000, why 2009? Because in 2009, the, the, the American OTO won another 
case, and they pretty much silenced uh, anybody who would still use the uh, the name and and logo or lamen of OTO. It's a classic copyright claim that you know was very popular up until a few years ago. I think you hear less of it now, but you know it, it's like this concept of IP, right? They claim that they were their IP. Uh, one thing, another thing we have to understand is that Kenneth Grant really took Telema in a different direction, right? Kenneth Grant saw Telema almost like as a, he wanted it to be much more, much more female-centric. Telema, as Crowley wrote it, is famously very much male-centric, like the male is a very much the active part of the, the equation. And Grant wanted to be more like the goddess centric, so female centric. Grant has a, had a much better understanding of Tantra that Crowley did, albeit completely bonkers compared to what we know about Tantra nowadays. But still, he had a much better understanding of Tantra and he wanted to bring much more of those elements in. Remember, as we said at the beginning of this chat, that Telema really is a unique blend of East and West. Well, Grant wanted more East than West. Okay, and so he kind of get rid of all the Masonic trappings. He kind of get rid of all the Golden Dawn trappings, which, by the way, the Golden Dawn is another of those orders that emerged and evolved from Freemasonry. And so he, he kind of changed dilemma radically to the point that I think it's correct to call what Grant what Grant does Typhonian uh, cult, because while there's still a very there's, there's a clear, like, Telemic vibe to it. You know, you still hear about Nuit, you still hear about, about Hadith, but then everything else feels very different, right? At the same point, at the same time, I think it's absolutely fascinating to, to study if you can accept the fact that if you come to Grant from Crowley, you will find it's almost like day and night, right? And it's, it's, think about it. It's almost like sun and moon. Again, one is very male-centric, Crowley, and the other is very female-centric, which is Grant. And it's really like, it's, it's quite different. Uh, Crowley really tried to create a structure to it, which is also what I uh, try to explain in my book. Like there is a structure to the rituals. There is a step-by-step, um, uh, you know, plan that you have to follow in order to make sense of all these practices. Well, Grant kind of, you know, threw everything, everything in the mix. And uh, when you read his books, uh, you, you, you have to approach them as, as art pieces, as almost like surrealist paintings, as poetry. Um, if you fall into the trap that you, that I, again, I see a lot online, you know, trying to make sense of Grant from a strictly, you know, magical, Kabbalistic uh, gematria, you will lose yourself because I don't think that's the point at all. It's good. I, I noticed that in the last few years, Grant became um, a topic much more, much discussed again, which is good. Uh, and I also noticed that a lot of people are making the same points I, I just made, right? Like, you know, let, let's let's stop to try and crawl AIs Grant. They are two different geniuses on their own, right? Also, we should never forget that another fundamental player in the Tifonian cult is Steffi. Steffi Grant, the, the, the wife of, of Kenneth, she was an incredible, incredible magician on her own. A true adept, a master, in fact. Without Steffi, there would be no Kenneth Grant. Uh, without Steffi, there would be, we would not have a lot of the of the knowledge we have about the Golden Dome, because if I was in the Carfax monographs, she um, 
you know, she copied and created new beautiful images of all these, um, all these things that were pretty much languishing in various uh, archives. And famously, since she had this background in art, it was through her inspiration that Ken, her and Ken Legrand discovered Austin Osman Spare, which is another like huge name, you know, culture and rightfully so, and in art as well. But it was them that rediscovered him. So I really believe that when we speak of Ken Legrand, we should never forget Steffi because she was, I think, as important as Kenneth. I wasn't aware of that, nor was I aware of Kenneth's re really anything about the T-O-T-O, -T -O, which is, yeah, a very interesting aspect yeah, of all of they, this. They, 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 don't call, they don't call themselves T-O-T-O anymore. They call themselves Typhonian Order. Okay. Because, uh, but it's just, it's just a minor thing, but I think it's important to to point out that they don't claim themselves to be O-T-O anymore. Right. Which okay. I think it's good for them, <laughs> to be fair. Well, and it's interesting because it has, uh, I think, post- 90s 2000 you do see this kind of influence in certain artists david lynch is one that's kind of more well known but there are bands and different music acts that have been inspired by grant and comic oh, yeah, book series absolutely. and whatnot right so yeah it has been incredibly influential so it's interesting to hear you describe his writing as like surrealist because it, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's pure art, right? Like you have to, and again, it fits perfectly with the idea that magic is the art and science of causing a reality to change according to the will. It's art and science. It's not just science, right? You gotta, you gotta put the art back into the mix. Um, I think you know this is something that we. I was discussing this with Peter Levant recently. Like me and Peter, we're 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 running a course right now called Stairway to Heaven, based on his monumental work from two thousand eight. And, you know, when we did, because we're like this looking at the concept of celestial ascent, uh, which is kind of like the final stage of, of spiritual evolution, the final initiation, if you want. And we were discussing about also how all this, uh, this discourse around spiritual celestial ascent feeds into the narratives of ufology. And, you know, ufology is such a huge topic nowadays for what all disclosure and whatever. It's, I think it's a psyop, but anyway. <laughs> Point being is that, like, Peter was clearly saying, like, we need to talk about the artists. Like, we, we will not make sense of, you know, contact and disclosure and whatever is out there maybe wanting to talk to us if we only try to look at it from the scientific side of it. We need the scientific side of it, Absolutely, because we 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 evolve, we kept on evolving through technology and through science, but we need to bring in the seers, the artists, the musicians, the, the painters, the poets, because all of this makes the human experience. It's a science and an art together. And you got you kind of get Crowley being more this the science of magic and Grant being the art of magic. Together, they really, when you look at the lemma from both sides, uh, you kind you kind of get the full scope of it. Again, you get the sun and the moon fused together, and that's as alchemical as it gets, right? Right. Yeah, no, and, and uh, you know, as when we were talking about AA earlier, um, mm -hmm. which stands for Argentum Astrum, Latin for silver star, and and their overall teaching is scientific illuminism. And when I read that word, just kind of brushing up on AA, 
I thought to myself, yeah, that is kind of, you know, a perfect word to sum up that time period. And it's interesting how nowadays there, I don't know if the separation between science and, and religion or science and magic is, you know, wider or thinner these days. It's I, I'm almost feeling like it's a little wider given the scientific materialist dogma coming from, you know, certain realms of, of society. But it seems like at this point in history, when Crowley was, you know, in his heyday and when these groups were a little bit more popular, um, people had a sense that this progress and innovation that they was clearly all around them from, you know, the trains to the automobiles to the cameras, which became the silver screen and, and so on and so forth. And they clearly were in, enveloped in a magical time period. And, and nowadays, I don't know, with the, the digital and the quantum age that we're heading towards, I wonder if younger generations will even have that sense of magic because they, like things can be now explained digitally and like computers have a magic, but if you've only known computers, how magical is it? I mean, is that, is my yeah. point kind of coming across? No, no, it does. It does. Absolutely. Like, you know, famously it's been like in the last 20 years uh, since, you know, the internet became a thing I've been finding again and again, this idea that, you know, we once upon one, we will soon get to the point where it doesn't matter if you cannot attend like an initiation in person, because we will be able to recreate our temples in our, you know, with our virtual reality. And I remember like 20 years ago, early 2000s, um, very early, very clunky 3D models of a Golden Dome temple. I guess you can still Google it, or maybe you go on the Wayback Machine, you can still find it. And now, of course, you have Apple, Apple VR. I don't know what's the name, like the, the 3,000 pounds gadget that pretty much, you know, puts you into a, a, com a complete VR setting, right? I'll tell you, that will never ever substitute a real magical initiation in a real place because it's not about seeing things it's about smelling things it's about feeling other hands touching you it's about tasting things i mean you could argue that we'll get to the point i don't know maybe we would narrow link like the elon musk latest chip that you know if bill gates wants to chip everybody is evil and elon musk wants to chip everybody is good right that's <laughs> it's just ridiculous to me but i don't know maybe with narrow link we will be able to smell and taste and everything but i don't think i don't think any of that will ever substitute the kind of experience that you get through being in a room when with other people and hearing certain things and seeing certain things and smelling certain things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, I do think that we should not be tech shy, right? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fine balance to strike. And I don't think any of us has the, the correct balance figured out yet. Uh, and so again, in, in, in the spirit of scientific illuminism, we need to keep trying and keep to, you know, a present theories and test the theories and, uh, you know, keep record of the, of the trials and then, you know, going to applying the scientific method to something that is that kind of wants to transcend science, because again, it's, it's something that, that it's a marriage of science and art. Like, it, you know, the, the motto of the equinox 
was indeed, you know, the the method of science and the aim of religion, and that's 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 really is right. Really is the the motto and the the the, the real aspiration of all of us who are aspirants of the AA. And on that note, like I like to always like to say, the AA, you know, people think it means Argento Mastrum, Silver Star. It could mean that, or it could mean Angel and Abyss. Or it could mean, I don't know, Aurora Aurea, which is again Latin for Golden Dawn. You know, mm. there's many things that just, I'm just leaving that like there. Like there is the truth is that the, the real name of the AA is only known to the initiates, but people can speculate. Right. That's fine. Right. Well, I appreciate that because, uh, yeah, it, things have multiple layers and and nuances and i think that's part of the magic of reading crowley and even engaging with um, his art i have the thoth book and the thoth tarot card deck and from what i what i read this is quite a while ago almost 10 years ago now when i got my first tarot card deck but i chose crowley's tarot card deck because i had read somewhere that he had put a tremendous amount of thought into um, the the meaning and the numerology and all of the different aspects that went into making a good tarot card deck. So as we sort of wind down here, I'm I'm curious if you know anything about that process and the the what your thoughts are on the Thoth tarot card deck. I mean, is my is is the only is the only deck that I use, right? I, I think I have a collection of almost hundred decks by now, but the only one I actually use is the Thought deck, because as you said, Crowley distilled the entirety of his life and his all his spiritual undertaking into those cards. the The major arcana are some of the most complex and rich tapestries of symbology. You, I think there's nothing better than that. I mean, there's some people, their medic tarot it came out in the 70s, tried to do something similar. There are others who, who put a lot of you know, work in it. Something that came close to it, but it's, you know, uh, I don't know if you know Paul LaFollet's art. Uh, there was a guy who died a few years ago, and he used to make these huge, massive, like walls, big diagrams of speaking about, you know, life itself and the spiritual evolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he, I think he's, he's the one that comes, comes closer to the amount of information that is encoded in the Thought Tarot, especially in the major arcana. But even the minors are pretty insane, right? Like I said, like I, one of the courses I, I teach is called Thought Tarot Magic, and it's only on the major arcana. And the first time I ran it, I ran it over six months, just to give you an idea of how much stuff you have to talk about now. So right now I am distilling it. I, I'm trying to to put, figure out a way that I can actually, I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff is now, it's now recorded, so all, all that work is done. But uh, yeah, it, 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 it takes a lifetime to, to really make sense of it. And it's also interesting because it's, the, the art is sublime. The art was done by Frida Lady Harris. Mm. And again, all the communication, all the, the correspondence between the two exists to this day. We can read it. I think Deja Whitehouse, as part of her PhD, uh, she she's she should publish the book of, of her findings. But she studied all the, the correspondence, and it's fascinating. Like, they really poured their lives 
into creating this deck. And remember, they were doing this during the Blitz, you know, when the Nazis were bombing London. They were still going around making sense, trying to make this deck happen. It's incredible. Even the fact we have it, it's insane, right? Even the fact it survived World War II, it's incredible. So, I mean, I don't have, I don't have much else to say about them. I'm, I'm just gushing over it because I love it, right? And uh, yeah, it's, it is the best deck that we have. There, there's no denying it. Well, and even, you know, tarot cards themselves kind of represent uh, the archetypical esoteric concepts that are subconsciously interwoven behind much of Western civilization, mm-hmm, literature and mythology. You know, there's a whole thought that the tarot card decks are based on something very, very, very old, maybe pre-flood civilization old Mm -hmm. which is so fascinating to me and and especially considering crowley you know thought of himself as ushering in this new aeon which you know could upset some people for uh, who have you know attachments to the traditions in the past but i think really you know my interpretation of that has always been almost like a, a syncretic um a spiritual global civilization is kind of what mm-hmm. he saw and and uh, i'm not advocating for any sort of totalitarian anything but i do think that as far as spirituality goes it'd be great to have a cohesion in the world instead of so much division i mean one of the things that i spent time studying when i was younger was a history of wars and you know many wars have been fought over ideas and beliefs and religious you know leaders sending people into fervor and and so on and so forth so maybe crowley had uh, a vision of a world that you know people might appropriate to like someone like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King, you know, not to to put Crowley in the realm of like civil rights leaders, but he did sort of see the future in a way that I don't know many people did uh, in his lifetime. You know, this. I, I think I think you're right. I think you're right. I think he really hoped that, you know, humanity could get to the next step and the next step would be you know, recognizing that, you know, as it's written in the book of the law, every man and every woman is a star. And so by recognizing our stardom, uh, not so much as, again, as a internet celebrity, but in- inherent spiritual stardom, we would learn to be in perfect harmony with with everybody around us. Like, much like constellations, like living in perfect harmony, like there seemed to be a perfect harmony in the universe, right? I would argue that this is also be right before that the black holes were in, were discovered. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> that harmony in the cosmos also it is upset from time to time, but um, it's definitely a beautiful aspiration. And I think I think Curly wanted it right. But again, um, the the counterpoint really is that in order to get to the, to balance you have to go through you have to imbalance yourself first this is the truth of alchemy right in order to create the the gold you have to to get the the metal like the lead through the fire of the athanor and get to the you know the negredo phase the putrefaction phase and all of that conf- that that you know all of that that entails so that by you know continuous purification 
then eventually the gold emerges. And I feel like we are living in a time where we are in the fire and we are trying to purify ourselves. We can only hope we will be able to do it. Mm. But I think we will. I want to be positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. Amen to that and well said. Now, one last question before I ask you to remind the folks where they can go to follow up with your amazing courses, pick up your book and anything else you'd like to promote. Obviously, you and Peter Lavenda are working together. I'm excited about that. Peter's a an author whose book is Bo several books of his are on my shelf and yeah I'm, I'm hoping to add yours to the collection and maybe even add peter to the collection of amazing people i've, I've spoken to on this show but on the point of crowley i guess one last question um you know kind of going back to what we said about christianity and the eastern mysticism and how he was very much a part of this still moving syncretistic uh trend do you think Crowley, and maybe, you know, I just don't know where he's written this, but ha had he ever written about reincarnation? And do you think that, you know, he is alive now? Like, do you think he had a concept of, like, his next lifetime? Did he ever write about that? I mean, he famously wrote multiple times about his some previous incarnations of his. He considered Ankafnakonsu, which is the the priest king of Mentu that appears on the Steel of Revealing as one of his previous incarnations. He thought of Alphonse Louis Costant, that is Eliphas Levy, uh, as he, well, one of his previous incarnations. And he also, there's an instruction uh, in, uh, in the AA called Liber Tisharb, and Tisharb is the Hebrew word Berashit, um, you know, from like, like you see, if you watch the, if you, if you put this word upside down, right? Like, you know, uh, if you turn this word, I can't say that in English, but you know, if you, if you write Bereshit on the other side, you get a T-sharp, right? And the idea is that, you know, remembering where you come from, because Bereshit means in the beginning, and it's the, fa the first word uh, that you find in Genesis in the Bible. So there's a, there's a series of instruction for you to access your magical memory and try to remember who you were in a previous lifetime. Now that said, in my experience, and sorry, I should also say that he also wrote in the in the, the final collect, the 11 collect of the Gnostic Mass, Liber 15, um, this beautiful pa passage that pretty much says that in the, at the moment of death, you shouldn't fear that. And if we have found our true will, uh, if and that implies if we advance on our spiritual path enough to achieve the knowledge and conversation of the holy than angel, so samadhi, so a pretty much advanced realization. Well, we will get to decide what to do, which could be like reincarnate on this world or in another world, or to be say in uh, united in contemplation of our loved ones, or to be united with the all, or what, whatever else we can think of, and everything we cannot think of, pretty much. So he was definitely he was definitely into it, right? He definitely considered that as a as a matter of fact. Um, yeah. I don't know if he's alive now, right? <laughs> um, you would you think that part of of believing incarnation as a as a choice uh, for somebody who uh, who has um, achieved a pretty advanced level of initiation is that you would have you would be able to remember your previous lives 
Uh, and so you would come back to this life and with, with a memory of what you did in a previous life, right? There's no one around that really feels like Crowley. And so, I mean, at least from my perspective, so I don't know if he's alive now. Maybe, you know, at the moment of that, he decided to go somewhere else. Mm. That's that's what I think, at least. Yeah, no, and it is interesting because that, that thought came to me and it, it's mostly more for the reincarnation and not not for the the where is he i'm not trying to track him down or anything but but you know well, trust a, me you, ju you just need to go to to reddit <laughs> they'll, <laughs> they'll find you <laughs> there's so many out there <laughs> oh my gosh yeah well hey who knows maybe it was him that interrupted my my shift at the cafe but yeah, <laughs> yeah that, you, could, you could go be you never know <laughs> well and that's the thing it, it's like i wonder if there is a, a level um spiritual adepthood where one simply consciously walks from this incarnation to the next one you know i i'm sure it's been written about i don't know if it's within buddhism or hinduism but i i've read something like that before and yeah i just felt like i had to ask you in case it did come from crowley but either way marco this has been such a fantastic conversation surely a a, a different um episode than I've done, but a topic that I'm very familiar with. I don't talk much about Crowley on my podcast because he is a decisive character. But when I found your work, I was like, no, I think this guy's the perfect person to talk to. And yeah, I'm very pleased with, with our conversation. I'm really grateful that you were able to join me for almost two hours here. So remind the folks again, how they can follow up with you, where they can sign up for your courses and anything else you'd like to promote. Well, once again, I would like to thank you for the invitation. It's been really, really, really a good talk. Possibly my favorite so far. You know, like thank every you. time you get you get invited to podcast, a lot of people want to ask about the same things. I think we covered a lot of interesting ground here. Thank so you. thank you for that. Uh, people can find me at marcovisconti.org. That is my website. It kind of hacked as the hub of everything I do. Uh, you'll be able to find, you know, all explanation for all my courses. What I offer really is classes, which is, you know, one, two hours recorded you know, material that you can watch maybe on an, on an evening. I'm starting to offer like weekend workshops, you know, just over a weekend, we, we touch on several topics. We're going to discuss next about the Telemicoli season and the Clifford, which is another interesting subject. And, and then there are courses, which is, you know, longer, usually, usually it's two months now. Uh, and so, of course, you can find everything I do there as well, you know, uh, all my news, um, links to my, I kind of have a, like a live stream that I do on, on YouTube, maybe every, every month, uh, from time to time often, from time to time less often, depend. I'm terrible at, you know, creating content. I, I just, you know, up on a live stream when I have something to say. Uh, and then you find also everything about my book. So yeah, marcovisconti.org. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Thank you so much for being here again and to the audience listening, follow up with Marcos. The links are in the description and until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Right. 
ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And uh, full disclosure, I do not fully agree with today's guest uh, based on all uh, appearances and remarks from our guest. It seems like he belongs to the uh, Crowley sympathizer camp or the, the folks who defend Crowley. I don't blame them. There isn't any... Um, let's say physical evidence in the form of uh any convictions that went through to a court of law you know he was never prosecuted in a criminal trial but you heard marco himself admit you know he wasn't a good guy to the people around him he was abusive well they'll admit that because it's hard not to crowley basically admitted it himself but it's it's weird they don't look at some of the other materials where he's admitted much more than uh, what is easy to dismiss like the comment about sacrifice and how you know we're talking about a uh, we're talking about masturbation here I personally disagree with that um, you know I'm not going to turn this conversation into a debate i also didn't want marcos to feel uh, attacked and leave the zoom meeting because i had other questions that didn't have to do with alistair crowley but when one reads alistair crowley's own writings and he's talking about the most suitable candidate for a sacrifice is a male child between you know around adolescent age that doesn't sound to me like a, a innuendo this doesn't sound like a sexual innuendo innuendo and you, and you pair that with the poetry he's written alistair crowley's written that is pedophilic in nature and i just i really can't support someone like alistair crowley uh i was a fan of his work when i was younger uh i read some of his materials i still have books about him but i really uh it's not a subject that i am all that uh interested in from the from the fanboy perspective and no disrespect to marcos visconti but honestly i think this interview is a good if anything demonstration of the types of people who have a cognitive dissonance when it comes to alistair crowley and now if you read alistair crowley's uh, book titled snowdrops which i do not recommend then you may find that you do not like alistair crowley as much as you you might want to um keep in mind a lot of the things that alistair crowley was writing didn't necessarily originate with him there's a certain genius in in being able to compile all this information don't get me wrong i have an immense level of respect for the person but uh you know when you look at a criminal someone who violates other people's um free will other people's safety violates other people's health you know abuses others frankly put you know that's not somebody that i want to endorse but then again we're looking at a historical figure you know we don't look at someone like frederick nietzsche with maybe as much criticism but uh or as as much scrutiny rather but i think crowley deserves it in the sense that he is defended very often 
And he does have connections to intelligence agencies, which I firmly believe used materials provided by folks like Aleister Crowley to inform their MKUltra um, operations. So, yeah, I personally have a lot of challenges with any person who speaks or writes about Crowley in a positive light. I think when we're looking at historical figures, we need to look at them at, at the very least from a neutral perspective. Uh, there is a case to be made uh, that, you know, certain people are admirable and, and worth the, uh, you know, worth reading about for the inspiration that they might instill. But Crowley is not someone who I think is, is worth inspiring. I think, if anything, he's somebody who could lead unstable people down a road uh, towards mental illness. And I, I've personally witnessed that myself in... Uh, people that were not close to me, not really in any sense close to me, but people who I, I've seen uh, engage with the material from afar um, and just the types of characters who generally are open to discussing that topic. But then again, I was there myself, so this is not a judgment. Um, I'm not characterizing Marcos as a bad person for writing about Crowley I think you know he may just be unwilling to look into certain aspects of it um who knows but then again uh there were some other uh, <laughs> things that I found out from a friend podcaster that made me think you know what I'm just gonna be honest normally I'm very polite with everybody that I'm I have on the show especially when I do the intro and the outro there's something about it where, you know, I've already talked to them. I don't want them to feel like this is a gotcha interview or some sort of exploitation. But I also have an audience that is sensitive, right? I mean, you guys are, are sensitive and you're interested in making the world a better place. So don't be dismayed if you listen to this and think, oh, great, now this guy thinks Crowley's a good guy. No, we need to be able to talk to everybody, hear everybody out, and uh, part of being an adult is not agreeing with everybody, hearing what others have to say, and letting that better inform your level of awareness. So I hope we were able to achieve that at the very least today. Again, I don't, not, I don't endorse um, Marcos's opinions about Crowley. I do not share those opinions or beliefs. I have a different... Uh, version of Crowley that I see. I think it's a, a closer version to the truth. And I have the sources to back it up. So if you have any more questions about that, you know where to reach me. And yeah, that's about it for this episode, folks. If you like what I do, support what we do here on the Patreon or the Substack. And uh, you can also send a one-time donation. You can support on social media. We've got Twitter. We've got TikTok. We've got Instagram. Instagram is my favorite, but I do use TikTok now. And Twitter and all of the video versions of the show go out to YouTube, Rockfin, and Rumble. We're now on Rumble. Go check out the Nick Bryant interview on Rumble, the full video interview. And uh, I put some work into the intro, but it's, you know, it's a Zoom meeting. It's nothing fancy. 
one day we'll get in a studio and we'll have guests in person and that whole thing. It's on the it's on the timeline in the future. So uh, yeah, look forward to that. Support the show so we can get there faster. And uh, if you like this episode, good. If you didn't like us talking about Aleister Crowley, well. Maybe that reaction you're having is telling you something about yourself. I was there. I'm there now. That's why I'm being this transparent with you guys about how I feel about this guest. I think uh, it's not even really necessary at all for really any guest, um, but for this topic, uh, it's necessary because, yeah, I'm I'm always transparent with everybody, but I I also don't want to be rude or make the guests feel like they've been you know entrapped in some kind of gotcha conversation so when i realized that he was sort of on that side of the fence with crowley i i just backed off and yeah that's kind of my protocol if you like it let me know if you don't like it let me know i'm all about feedback so hit me up on the social medias Send me an email, leave us a five-star rating and review, and I'll read it on the show. And, yeah, of course, please sign up to support the show. And with that, folks, thank you so much for being here. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. In like a hundred years, we went saw bomb before guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you can stick with your old ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. You can keep your blood so terrible And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy I'm on the internet feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pap thinks I'm un-American and shady I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end One too many Netflix docs on the weekends But check the budget for our military defense Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason Steel beams, another 1492 And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue And you be lit off the floor, riding ain't got a clue All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs Too much to unpack, so they talk smack And I'm just trying to converse with my clan But it ain't fan, so I'm here setting up camp Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me my family thinks I'm crazy
Anything out, so 